Well, when it comes to stories, we know that there are good stories, and then there are exceptional stories. Um, So, for example, we can read Scuffy the Tugboat to our kids, and that's a pretty good story. Or we might read something like The Paper Bag Princess, or maybe The Gruffalo to our kids. Those are great stories. Or or as adults, we can read The Great Gatsby. That's a classic. That's a pretty good story. Or we can read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, or maybe The Chosen. And those those are really, really extraordinary stories. Um, And and it can be hard to sort out exactly what makes a story only good instead of great. Obviously, uh, our own perspectives and preferences have have a lot to do with it. But one thing that we can be sure about is when we read a great story, it tends to have the automatic function of causing all other stories uh, to pale in comparison. I remember the first time I read To Kill a Mockingbird, and, and when I finished the book, I felt a different kind of sadness, like I would never be able to read that story for the first time again, because it was just so good. It was just such a, a wonderful story. So there's good stories, and there's great stories. Now, now, in saying that, as we come to 1 Samuel 11 today, we have a good story. We have a true story. Uh, in this chapter, we have the, the final installment, actually, in a series of stories that describe the historical events surrounding Saul's uh, ultimate installation as the first king over the people of Israel. Now, you remember the first episode where in chapter 9 and into chapter 10, Saul was secretly anointed by Samuel and all the events that took place there. And then in the last part of chapter 10, we, which we looked at last week, we had Saul selected as king publicly. You remember the casting of lots and the Lord intervenes and has to tell them where Saul is hiding. Uh, and now in chapter 11, today we have the story of, of how Saul is confirmed victoriously as Israel's king. And so we have that progression in these three chapters, uh, illuminating the fact that Saul is going to be the first king in Israel. He's anointed secretly, he's um, selected publicly, and now in this chapter he's confirmed victoriously, and and that's a really good story. So we could title chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, uh, The Victorious Confirmation of the King. It's a good story. However, while recounting events of Saul's final royal confirmation here, This chapter also contributes in an even bigger way to to the greatest story of them all. Because if one one title for this chapter is the victorious confirmation of the king, uh, an alternative, maybe a much bigger, a much better uh, and fuller uh, title for this chapter might be something like The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, which is the title of a book by Andrew Nassali, but I'm stealing it for this. The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. So, so, so this is, 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 is one of those chapters which can have two titles going on. One, obviously, is way more climactic and big than the other. We have the victorious confirmation of the king. That's all true. We're going to look at that. But title two, the serpent and the serpent slayer, which immediately we can recognize this is going to be a much better story. This, this one is the one that should be the movie. It's, it's, a, it's a bigger deal. And, and the thing is, both these stories are very present in our chapter this morning. And as we look at this chapter, as we look at these stories, ultimately, uh, we, can, we can be moved by what's here, just by the sheer magnificence of God's purposes in history as He reveals things, because this is one of those sections in Scripture that just makes us worship in a unique way. At least that's what it's done for me as I've, as I've been studying this, this week. It's a, it's, a, it's a chapter that lifts our head in worship, uh, ultimately responding to, to the extraordinary significance of Jesus' own victorious royalty. So it, it compels us in that way. And so what we're going to do is, is we're going to need to, uh, to study this passage today, uh, for, first of all, by taking a pass and considering the immediacy of the events of the text. So, so we need to understand what's going on here in, in, in chapter 11. 
And then from there, what we're going to do is we're going to back up and we're going to see how critically this chapter figures in uh, to, to, the, to the bigger reality, the bigger redemptive victory uh, that God is, is, is in the process of at this time in history working out and revealing, but what we know much more fully now on the other side of, of Christ coming and, and, and victoriously defeating uh, sin at the cross. So, uh, so we're going to do this, again, in a little different way than normal, but, uh, but, I, but I, I trust it will repay our study. So we're going to start on this, and, and we'll go through it. First of all, we have the victorious confirmation of the king. That, that's what's going on in chapter 11 at, at its basic level. Um, and, and we have in the first three verses uh, the narrator introducing us to this figure, Nahash, who destroys. Nahash, who destroys. Um, you, you can actually note from the beginning that, that Nahash is the Hebrew word for serpent. So, so, so we're, immediately, we're, we're immediately given pause, if we were reading this in, in Hebrew, to, to maybe Nahash is at least his character qualities. Somebody named serpent. This isn't going to be somebody we're, we're very fond of, right? And, and, and depending on the Bible translation you're reading from, you might actually notice a long footnote at the end of chapter 10 that includes a more a thorough introduction to Nahash than is in the main text of our Bible, um, that's actually a section that comes from some of the scrolls found in Qumran. Uh, it's, it's extra text that tells us about some of this brutal activity that Nahash had been involved in uh, around Israel during this time. It, it's probably not part of the inspired text of Scripture, but it was found with some other uh, manuscripts of, of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the Bible, we, we have a footnote in there in a lot of translations just because Maybe it is. It doesn't really make a difference in the text. All it does ultimately is underpin what we're told about, about Nahash here. Because beginning in chapter 11 with Nahash, Nahash is, is, is obviously revealed as a terrible guy. He's a very bad person. The, the text tells us that he's come and laid siege to Jabesh-Gilead, which is an Israelite population east of the Jordan River, which is in uh, proximity to Ammonite territory. Um, and as a result of this siege, the men of Jabesh say to Nahash that they'll make a treaty with him and they'll be his servants. So in other words, they, they don't want to die under this siege. They know they're over, overwhelmed militarily. They'll, they're willing to surrender. Um, the, the trouble is that Nahash says he's going to make a treaty with them on the condition that he gouges out everyone's right eye so he can humiliate everybody. Um, now, now, obviously, that's a grotesque thing to do. And, and it seems almost like a, a random and brutal expression of violence. And it is an extremely brutal expression of violence, but it's not random. It does help us to know that. Uh, because it's, it's actually very um, tactful on the part of Nahash. In, in the ancient Near East, we read about how there was a practice involving this, this gouging out of the right eye of, of people you conquered in battle. And there were two reasons for it. One, if you did that, there would be this humiliation factor, but they could still work. So in an agrarian culture, you needed people to, to have all their limbs, for example, if they're going to farm and make money that you can then take because you just conquered them and you want them to produce for you. So there's that. Uh, but, but, but a more critical reason is that uh, by doing this, by removing the right eye, you basically crippled a group militarily. Uh, because if you think about it during this time, fighting men held their shield in their left hand and their sword in their right hand, most people being right-handed. And when you hold a shield and fight with your right hand, what do you look with to get around that shield but stay safe? Well, you look with your right eye. To, to move the shield all the way across to look with your left eye, you're literally sticking your neck out. And in battle, that's, that's, that's the end of you. 
You know, so, so it disables people militarily. So, so Nahash is effectively saying in this, if you want a treaty with me, I'm basically going to destroy you. I'm going to disable you from ever being able to rise up with any kind of fighting power again. So, so this is extremely devastating to the people. This isn't just a, a commitment to a, to a kind of treaty with this foreign power that they think maybe in time we can rise up and then, and then defeat him in battle again. No, this is total subjugation. We're, we're done militarily if we, if we yield to this guy. So the elders of Jabesh, they ask Nahash if they can have seven days to send out messengers and see if anybody from the greater territory of Israel will come and save them. And if nobody comes, they say they'll come out and surrender. Um, And we can infer from the text that obviously Nahash agrees to these terms, which seems really strange. You know, who's going to to let your enemy have a little time to go gather some extra backup? It's a a strange thing to do. Um, But but probably uh, it, it hinges on the fact that a, Nahash is, is arrogant. He, he just thinks he's going to win and, and nothing they can do will, will change that. But also, uh, earlier in the book of Judges, we read about an encounter that the Ammonites had with the Israelites uh, where, where Israel uh, really struggled to, to find help. They, they were very hesitant to be, to be helpful to a group that was coming under the attack of, of the Ammonites. So probably um, Nahash thought that no one from Israel is really going to come and help. In fact, there's a longer story, which we won't get into today, but Jabesh Gilead, as a people group within Israel, are already kind of on the outs with Israel in general. You can read about that in Judges 21. So that may have increased Nahash's confidence that these guys are basically exiled across the river already. Nobody's going to come and help them. And, and they can have seven more days just to wallow in the fact that this extraordinary pain is going to be experienced by them. It's also the, almost like this, this, this wicked willingness to let them languish in any anticipation of defeat and these kinds of things. Nahash is a destroyer. So, so we see here how he's, how he's not just seeking to defeat the people of God at Jabesh. He's not even seeking just to disfigure the people of God at Jabesh. He's, he's actually angling, like the text says here, on this total humiliation of the people. So it's, it's defeat, you can't fight, and, there, and there's no, we want, I want you to know there's no help for you. That's basically what he's, what he's saying to them. Um, Nahash, Nahash is a man out for destruction in ways that are far above and beyond just normal military interest. In fact, one scholar commenting on Nahash equated him uh, to, to bloodthirsty leaders of more modern times, and, and, he, and he quoted Stalin, which is a little too close to home given what's going on in, in Russia right now. But, but, but listen to this quote from Stalin. Stalin said this, to choose the victim, to prepare the blow with care, to satisfy an insatiable vengeance, and then go to bed, there is nothing sweeter in the world. That's downright demonic sounding, isn't it? But, that, but that's Stalin, right? And that, and that was Nahash, an insatiable desire for destruction. Nahash is the destroyer. Okay, so, so, so keep that in mind as we move through the story here. It, it's a true and historical story. This is a good story, so we keep going. We move from Nahash the destroyer, obviously a, a horrific person, now into uh, verses 4 to 11 where we have Saul who delivers. Nahash who destroys, now we have Saul who delivers. Um, so, so far, we know Saul has been privately anointed by Samuel as, as king for Israel. He's been publicly selected by God in that episode we studied last time. But even after those two events, um, we do remember that things are still a little bit tense because these people knew Saul. <laughs> and, and while many hailed him as king, there were those dissenters who left that um, public recognition of Saul, muttering words that we have at the end of chapter 10. You remember what they said? They didn't bring him a gift. And what are they saying? Can this guy really save us? There are these dissenters in Israel. How, how can this guy save us? 
Israel wanted a king like the nations who would lead them victoriously in battle. But, you know, in, in chapter 10, Saul's, Saul's hiding in the armor. He's hiding in the battle gear. He's not putting it on. So they're wondering, what in the world? Is this, is this guy really going to be the one who can help us? But watch what happens. Verse 4, these messengers from Jabesh uh, go looking for help. They come to Gibeah where Saul lives, and they tell the people what's going on with Nahash, the siege, the, threat, the siege and the threats and all of this. The people of, of Gibeah start weeping, which, which is a typical Israelite a public expression of mourning and distress. So it's a bad situation, but, but there's probably even more to it than that, and that Judges 21 actually shows us that there's a biological family connection between, um, between Jabesh and, and, Gilead, and Gibeah, uh, Saul's hometown. So they, they have cousins there, we could, we could put it that way. So the sorrow is acute for them, they're very sad. And in verse 5, Saul comes in from the field. Which again strikes us as a touch strange, because in chapter 10, Saul, uh, he, he's just been publicly introduced as a king, but he returned home, and now apparently there's this lag time be- between his kingly recognition and the exercise of his kingly duties. He's just out there farming, um, which, which we know from earlier episodes that Saul isn't much of one for initiative anyway, so this doesn't totally surprise us that we don't find him trying to, to sort out his, 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 his cabinet and these kinds of things in the monarchy. He just goes home and keeps doing what he's doing because it's too hard to think about doing some of this new stuff that I'm supposed to be doing. He's just, he's just out in the field with oxen. So it doesn't surprise us. But Saul comes in. The people are upset. They tell him what's going on. And then when Saul hears this, we're told that the Spirit of God uh, suddenly comes powerfully upon him. It's actually interesting there. There's a Hebrew word that we could translate as, as rushing, maybe a little bit more, more accurately. The only time it's ever used in the context of, of, of a person like this is when Samson would be filled with that unnatural strength, that, that rushing upon him. So, so the Spirit of God comes rushing upon Saul. We're meant to see the intensity of this. And his anger, then we're told, burned furiously. So he's, he's fired up now. And then he does what seems like the strangest thing. He takes his oxen that he's just been farming with he cuts them up and he sends them throughout the territory of Israel who says, with this messenger who says, what's happened to these ox is going to happen to your oxen if you don't come and help us fight. So I'm, I'm basically, I'm going to take you out economically if you don't jump in and join me. Right? Evidently, uh, he invokes Samuel's name as well here. So he marched behind Saul and Samuel, he says. He's probably trying to make sure even dissenters are feeling the impulse. Me and Samuel are going out. And so we read how the fear of the Lord falls on the people. It was quite a threat, after all. Uh, The fear of the Lord falls upon the people, and they go out united, we're told. And verse 8 shows a huge number of Israelites then gather at Bezek, which is about 10 miles out from where Nahash would have staged his siege. So they're staging there. Huge number of Israelites gather to fight. And in verse 9, Saul tells the messengers uh, to go back to Jabesh and tell them, basically, in effect, salvation is going to come for you by high noon tomorrow. That's what he said, by the time the sun is hot, by high noon, salvation's going to come. So that's part of why we know it's a good story. All good stories have something happening at high noon. High noon, this is coming. Messengers go back, tell the men of Jabesh. Obviously, the men of Jabesh are very happy. They're rejoicing, and they decide to throw a little psychological warfare in their game uh, just, just, to, just to keep Nahash feeling this sense of security. They actually say to Nahash, tomorrow we'll come out. There's actually a pun in here in verse 10 in Hebrew. They literally say, tomorrow we'll come out. And you can do to us whatever seems good in your eyes. <laughs> they must have chuckled to themselves when they mentioned eyes. Oh yeah, we're coming out so you can do whatever you want, which is what? Gouge out their eyes. You, we're coming out and you can do whatever seems good in your eyes. Uh, but of course, you're not gouging out our eyes. All of Israel's coming for you. Right? 
So verse 11, the next day, which is, which is actually, if we have to work out the timing here, that's really the evening of the day we're talking about. Hebrew culture um, starts new days in the evening, what we would say the evening before. So that new day, the evening, evening is there. Saul gets everybody ready. And then during the morning watch, which is between 2 and 7 a.m., uh, they invade the Ammonites and slaughter them until the heat of the day. During the morning watch, they come and do this. There's an interesting textual note here that we could just have because it's just amazing, the, the cohesion of some of this. The only other time this kind of timing is described in the, in the Old Testament is in Exodus where the, the, uh, the uh, Philistine army has pursued Israel through the Red Sea. They're in the middle of that pathway through the Red Sea. And at this time in the morning, the Lord causes confusion and the sea to come crashing down on them. So this is like God's victory time is the morning, right? Which fast forward to things like resurrection, right? So, so it's an amazing textual connection here. The Lord is obviously working victory for his people. Uh, in this instance, the Ammonites, they're totally routed. They're totally uh, defeated. Uh, if anybody's left, they're not left together. They're scattered all over the place. Um, and so, so what do we see? But, but Nahash, who destroys, is now completely set running by Saul who delivers. That's what we've got so far. And then, if we keep moving here, the final section of this narrative, we have exactly what we would expect. The people now are rejoicing. That's how things end. The people are rejoicing in their king. So verses 12 to 15, um, the people say to Samuel, you know, we'd really like to kill those guys who questioned whether or not Saul could lead us out victoriously in battle. Let's get those guys together and kill Who spoke against Saul? We want to know so we can kill him. Uh, interestingly, and, and file this away, Saul speaks, not Samuel, in response. They ask Samuel this. Saul kind of interrupts. And then he says, no one will be executed today. This is the day the Lord has provided deliverance for Israel, which is a nice, pious-sounding thing to say. File that away. And then Samuel calls the people to go back to Gilgal so they can renew the kingship there, which is necessary. Remember, there's some restorative work that needs to be done because, uh, because while Saul has been publicly recognized as king, some people didn't want Saul to be king. So there needs to be some renewal of, of all that's going on here in terms of establishing Saul. Uh, so, so they go to Gilgal in the Lord's presence. Uh, they, they finally, officially, sacredly go through this process of ratifying Saul's Saul's kingship, their sacrifices and so on. And then with all that, we read the last sentence there. Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So Nahash is defeated, and, and this king is the deliverer the people needed. Now we have the weeping of verse 4, replaced by the rejoicing of verse 15. Why? Well, because this king who God has appointed has brought mighty deliverance for his people, which is a good story. That's a, that's a very good story. It's an amazing account of how the Lord worked through the frailty we know to be this man Saul to bring about salvation for his people from an absolutely debilitating and devastating attack. So, so that's, it's a good story. However, as good as the story is, there are some, some dark shadows that are cast across all that's happening here. And I'm just going to give you a few of these shadows. There's, there's a number of them. I'll just give you a few. First of all, the manner in which Saul causes the people to fight for him is coercive, isn't it? And, and it actually reminds us of another really dark story that takes place in Judges, actually that's sourced in Gibeah, Saul's hometown, where that Levite priest compels people to fight by sending out a dismembered concubine. Right? I won't list all the parallels between that story and this story, but there are a bunch. 
Here, Saul send out, sends out dismembered oxen from Gibeah. Judges 19 to 20, you can read it for homework. This priest sends out a dismembered concubine from the exact same town in a time when we read that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what is right in their own eyes. So this is like no king kind of acting that's going on here. Saul's methods are concerning at the very least here. And not just that, but we read that the Spirit of God rushed on Saul in verse 6. Which on the one hand is obviously a positive indicator that, and, and the Lord did powerfully help him. There's evidence of that all over in the text. The Spirit of God came upon Saul and helped him be victorious in this. However, from Genesis through 2 Kings, so through the main body of narrative in the Old Testament, on, on many other occasions, God raises up deliverers for Israel. And in every other, almost every other case, we're told that the spirit, not of Elohim, not of the spirit of God, the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of the covenant promise-keeping God of Israel is what rushed up, what came upon these people and empowered them. Only two individuals are referred to in this way where the spirit of God, just the general um, designation of God is told about them. One is Saul and the other is Balaam who ends up ultimately being a big problem for Israel. If you read, if you read that account in Numbers uh, 30, you can read about it in Numbers 24 and Numbers 31, these two guys. So, so if we're reading this, we're thinking, that's interesting that the covenantal name for God isn't used there. But instead, Saul's, Saul's like, kind of like Balaam in his delivering power. Right? So that's troubling. And then, and then on top of all that, we think about Saul excusing his dissenters. So those men who said he shouldn't give in, which actually, which actually strikes us as kind at first. He uses such pious language after all. You know, this is the day for deliverance. We shouldn't uh, deal with these guys. Let's just all be happy. The problem is that in the law of God in Exodus 22, that you're not to curse a leader of God's people. That is something plain. In fact, Paul will bring that up in his apology later on in Acts when he calls some religious leaders a whitewashed wall when he insults them. He'll bring this up and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak against a leader of God's people. So Paul, Paul will bring that up. Here, that should be something that we deal with. In fact, David's going to deal with it a little later on in his own, in his own reign uh, with somebody who is dissenting against him. So it sounds like Saul's being compassionate and even very spiritual by letting these naysayers off the hook, but he's actually not adhering to God's law. He's not actually obeying uh, what, what, what Moses has written down in Exodus. So, so Saul's weak on obedience to the word of God. And then, and then there's just one more big punctuation mark. Again, there's a whole bunch of these in, in this story, but, but Saul defeats who? Saul defeats the Ammonites, which is like pretty good. But who are the tier one problem people for Israel at this point? We know them from the beginning of 1 Samuel all the way. In fact, they're the ones that ultimately the people of God are going to need deliverance from. David's going to have to show up to do a little help with this. Who, who's the problem? Tier one problem for Israel is not the Ammonites. Tier one problem for Israel is the Philistines. That's who, that's who they really need deliverance from. They're the big problem. And Saul hasn't done a thing about them yet, even though they have a garrison in his own hometown. He's out with the oxen. So there's tension there. And we could go on with some other things, but we put all this together and listen to, listen to how one scholar by the name of V. Phillips Long, listen to what he says here. This is very helpful. He says, The narrator artfully casts a shadow over Saul's moment of glory. I just like the, word, the use of the word artfully. There's tactic here in the way this story has been written to communicate certain things. It's a good story, but we're also meant to see this story in and of itself is not a great story. 
It's like when you get to the end of that series you've been watching on Hulu or whatever, you get to the end and they're, and they're just not wrapping everything up quite as tight as you wish they would. It's been really good, but there's this residual angst you have because it's not quite as dialed in as you were hoping it would be. And we, we wish the writers would have done a better job. However, in this case, the fact that it's a good story and not a great story doesn't speak to any lack of ability on the part of the writer. As Long put it, it's actually an artful reality that's present here. There's intention in the way this story is, is, is presented to us and these facts are recounted. Because by the end of this story, we're left seeing that the biggest point of this story is not just that it's a good story. The point of this good story is intended to add a very critical piece to the better story, to the biggest story. Okay, This is a story about the victorious confirmation of the king. Saul saved Israel from Nahash. But there's a better story. And that story, very much added to by the narrative we have here, that story is about the serpent and the serpent slayer. So let's do that one. The serpent and the serpent slayer. In a time long, long ago and in a place far, far away, the Lord created man. And he put the man in the paradise of the garden to work it and keep it. And he created a helper for the man. Her name was woman. And God gave them extraordinary good. He gave them the glorious paradise garden to enjoy and cultivate. And there was a tree in the midst of a garden. We can call it the obedience tree. And living life under God, who made all things, meant that the man and the woman would work and keep the garden, be fruitful and multiply, and yield to God's directive to not eat from that tree. And in the garden, everything was really good, and there was life. And then we get into Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And how does Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 begin? Listen closely. I'll actually, I'll say it for you in Hebrew. Listen, listen closely to this. Vaya Nahash. Haya Arum. Nahash, Haya Arum. And the serpent was crafty. Nahash is a Hebrew word for serpent. And that crafty serpent came in and deceived the woman, telling her to eat from the obedience tree. God doesn't really want you to be happy after all. If you're really going to be happy, why don't you go and do this? And the woman gave in to the temptation. And then Adam, who should not have been passive, but been actively working to keep the life of obedience in the garden, he took some of the fruit from his wife. He ate it too. And amid all that ensued as a result, the Lord comes into the garden. He came to where obedience in life had now been exchanged for temptation, which leads to death. And he spoke first to Adam, who tried to pass the blame to his wife. And the Lord spoke next to the woman who tried to pass, pass the blame to the Nahash. And she passed the, the, to the serpent. And then Genesis 3, 14 and 15, the Lord cursed the Nahash. He curses the serpent and he said, cursed are you. You'll move on your belly, dust all your life. Uh, the, the serpent, which we know from other scriptures, was a manifestation of Satan himself, was in the garden there. And the Lord curses him. And in that encounter with the man and woman and serpent, the Lord speaks these words of judgment, but he also speaks words of hope. There's a contrast that's set up. And in terms of the judgment, the immediate spheres of the man and woman's human responsibility would become disordered and broken, and ultimately death would come. But here's the surprise, death didn't come right then. If we're just reading the story, we would actually expect death to come right then. That's what God said would happen if you eat of the tree. You're going to die. But, but death doesn't come quite yet. Death will, but it doesn't quite yet. Because there's also this good news. When the Lord curses the serpent, he says that there will be enmity, there will be hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. That doesn't just mean ladies won't like snakes. Right? There's going to be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So, so the man and the woman, they're not going to die just yet. They're actually going to have kids. 
And, and eventually, an offspring of the woman, God says, will crush the serpent's head, while the serpent will bruise his heel. Offspring of the serpent will bruise his heel. And in that, basically, the whole trajectory of the greatest story is set. This is, this is all human history beginning now. Everything that's happening. There's the offspring of the serpent, and there's the offspring of the woman. And there's going to be continual conflict all the way through. But the serpent and its offspring is ultimately cursed and it will be defeated. However, the offspring of the woman, uh, while it will be hurt, is blessed and ultimately will be victorious. This stage is set. Okay, so we move into Genesis 4. And what do we see? Well, we see that the battle's begun. There's Cain and Abel. Right? Abel's sacrifice is acceptable to God. Who is Abel? Abel's the offspring of the woman. Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable to God. In fact, he's actually a murderer. Back in Genesis 3, Abel cursed with the exact same phraseology that the serpent was cursed back in Genesis 3. Abel's the offspring of the woman. Cain is the offspring of the serpent. There's a line of God's people and blessing. There's a line of the serpent's people and cursing. The narrative goes on. And one of Noah's sons is cursed. The line of the serpent exists alongside this line of promise. Genesis 12, you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham. How does he speak about that? Well, through Abraham's seed, the world will be blessed. There's the seed and the blessing. The seed of the woman is going to continue. But what will happen for those who oppose Abraham? Cursing. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Blessing and cursing. It's a line that runs all the way through the scriptures, so much so that John the Baptist decides to use this language to address the wicked Pharisees of his day. When they come out, what does he say to them? You brood of vipers. Right? You gathering of serpents. <laughs> Good way to start a service and keep a crowd. John 8, what does Jesus say to his opponent? You're of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus is saying, you're the seed of the serpent. 1 John chapter 3, we have the apostle John saying this. Listen, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Seed of blessing, seed of the serpent. John says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this, John says, is the message that we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Watch what he does here. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one. Shouldn't be a seed of the serpent like Cain. So the seed of the woman, children of God, seed of the serpent, children of the devil, line of blessing, line of cursing. All through the scriptures, there's this pattern established. Enmity between the seed of the woman, the offspring of, of hope, who will be finally victorious. Enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. One day the Lord promises that the seed of the woman will crush and defeat the seed of the serpent. Who will that be, we wonder? Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel 11, where we have a very big clue in this whole process where we see a battle pictured before us. What will it be like as we think about this serpent crusher who's going to come? Well, here we have, here we have the first battle in which Israel has, the, has a king. And, and who is this battle ultimately between? This first monarchical battle is between Nahash, the serpent, and God's appointed king, Saul. And what does Nahash do? Well, Nahash seeks the total humiliation of the people of God. That is what the serpent does. Total humiliation, degradation, subjugation, bring you to a place where you're totally locked down and can never be free. This is what the Nahash does. But that's not the final word. Nahash isn't the final victor because though he may be proud and foolishly arrogant and think he'll win, he doesn't win because God's king comes. And God's king comes with extraordinary power. 
In this section, there's, there's only one other place in the Old Testament where a larger army for Israel is recorded than the numbers recorded here. So, so, so Saul doesn't just come. Saul comes with mighty power against Nahash. God's king comes with this mighty power against the serpent and causes Nahash to flee in total defeat. So, so here we are at the beginning of Israel's monarchy. And as we move through the Old Testament, some categories are starting to get filled in for us. We know there's the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. We know that's there, the seed of blessing, the seed of cursing. And here we're given a picture of the offspring of the woman, God's selected king, defeating the serpent. Now, why is that connection so important to make? Well, we know why that connection is so important to make, because this is starting to fill in categories. Well, now we don't just have the victorious seed of the woman, we have the victorious royal seed of the woman, right? This king is going to come. This connection is so important to make, you, to, to make because it, it, it is this, this big narrative into which all of history falls. We now have a picture of, of what's going to happen in the sense that there is a battle fought between God's king and the Nahash. And while Nahash rages, while the serpent rages, while the devil, the accuser and deceiver rages, God's king will ultimately have victory. You remember how, how John, again, the apostle John in 1 John 3, describes Jesus' job when he comes? Somebody asks, why did Jesus come into the world? What's the answer John gives? John gives the answer uh, very, very plainly in the fact he says, the reason the Son of God appeared is this, to destroy the works of the devil. He's the serpent slayer. And knowing Jesus, God's ultimate king, we know the serpent slayer. Not, not a serpent slayer who is, who, who is ultimately and wholly unrighteous like Saul, but there's, there's this climax that reflect, is reflected here. Whereas the devil's ambition, we know, is the total humiliation of life. We know this is the work of the evil one. The evil one comes in a kind of mock defeat. I am in charge. I'm going to win. The battle will be mine. And I will crush you down. You'll be unable to fight. You might as well just subject yourself to me. There's no one to help. But that's not true. Because there is the serpent slayer who comes. So much so that the grip of the devil is no longer able to hold any who are Christ. But instead we're literally transferred from one kingdom into another. Which is exactly what Paul says in Colossians. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. Because our better king, King Jesus, ultimately crushes the serpent in total defeat. So the sin, which, which would otherwise consign us to darkness and death with the devil is paid for by Jesus, and we're released to look forward to this better Eden of a new creation where there is no serpent anymore because Jesus won. Just listen to this unique language in Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who is The devil thrashes. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The devil thrashes. But the devil loses because of the blood of the lamb and the truth about Jesus. Which, which is big. This is, this is the great story of all the cosmos and of all of history. The devil would come to destroy. The devil would come like Nahash to humiliate, denigrate, subjugate, all of those kinds of things, which we see going on around us. 
People bound in chains by the evil one's deception, thinking that life can be found where there's ultimately only death and more death and more death. Deception reigns. We see that in, in what culturally is most tenaciously endorsed in our time. It's, it's produced as life. It's spoken of as life, but it's deception because it's death. It's Nahash with the world under siege. We need the better king. And that we have Jesus, who by his blood frees us from the grip of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and frees us now and forever to be his subject. And Jesus will, uh, will come again. We have that great hope. He's, he's not only the great victor who's conquered sin and death at the cross, but he's the one who will come again. And we wait for that final and full expression of that reality. But from a passage like this, we're given this clue that it is going to be quite the royal, quite the royal return. Quite the royal return. Again, listen to this from Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in, righteous, in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, which by the way is the blood of his enemies. And the name which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus arrays with the mightiest of armies and Jesus wins and the, and the serpent and the serpent's seed is ultimately defeated. And what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, I tell you what we do with that. We do the last verse of 1 Samuel 11 with that. All the people rejoiced greatly because the king wins. And in this story, we have a shadowy but still a, a glorious glimpse of what's going on here with the serpent and the serpent slayer. The serpent's defeat by the serpent slayer is the big narrative into which all of history fits. And we need to have that in our mind. We need to understand this as we go about our days and lives, as we engage in the world around us. The big narrative that brings us from places of despair to places of hope is that ultimately uh, there is only one story that matters and it is the fact that the seed of the serpent, God's ultimate king, will defeat the Nahash. And praise God for that. The humiliator and violent destroyer of all God's good will be crushed. And that makes us worship and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. We praise you for your plan. We praise you for the victory of your son. We pray that we would see Christ as the victorious Savior that he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that one day every knee will bow. We bow our knee today. And we say, Lord Jesus, you are the great one who reigns supremely, powerfully, and incorruptibly. And we ask, Father, that we would be brought to trust more in Christ. And that others would be brought to trust more in Christ too. And be rescued from the domain of darkness. And transferred into the, the kingdom of your beloved son. Where there is life eternal. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.